Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hating families, carrying crosses, renouncing possessions. Our text from Luke chapter 14 contains a number of hard sayings. Sayings that make us squirm. Sayings that make us find some other explanation than the clear words of the text. Sayings that make us stop in our tracks. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what Jesus had in mind. And the context makes them sound even more radical. Immediately before this exchange, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man having a feast. You recall the story. Those who were invited came up with excuses. A new piece of land, a new oxen, a new wife. So he sends his slave out to the streets and lanes to gather the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. But still there's room. So he sends his slave out again, ordering him to compel people to come into my house, that it may be filled. It would seem that Jesus wants more disciples. And then immediately after our text, we have the lost chapter. Perils about lost sheep and coins and sons, the prodigal son. All of which Jesus sums up after the story of Zacchaeus by declaring, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is gathering disciples to himself unto salvation. There is perhaps a, a modern parallel in our society. David Schmidt relates, This summer I had a chance to enter the world of a socially connected teen. I was at Six Flags with a friend and her kids. And while we were waiting in line to go on rides, Josh shared with me his activities on social media. What struck me about our conversation was how intent he was on gaining followers. Regardless of what app he was on, he would always comment on the number of likes or friends or followers that he had, close quote. Claim a friend, get a friend, prove your score. Jesus' motives, however, are different. We would expect Jesus to be delighted in the great crowds that accompany him, according to the brief little travel narrative we have at the beginning of our text. These are all potential disciples, right? Sheep that need to be saved. Instead, Jesus turns around and he looks at them and he asks them to reconsider, to take another look, to listen and to consider these hard sayings. Before we tackle these sayings head on, let's first stop and consider what does Jesus mean when he talks about my disciple? It is a central issue in our reading. It appears three times, and it's always framed the same way. Unless X, whatever that is, you cannot be my disciple. We have some ideas about what disciples were, right? They're the 12. Well, okay. But what defines them? What is their discipleship? In a modern context, we speak of discipleship as a coming alongside to give advice or direction, and when necessary, a little correction as the disciple undertakes some task. This mentor-mentee relationship invites us back into the Old Testament, and the rabbi-disciple relationship we see practiced by Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Disciple is one side of the teacher-student relationship. But in the New Testament, to be a disciple, 
is much deeper than what we see in any modern classroom. It is a personal attachment to the rabbi, to the teacher, one that shapes the entire life of the disciple. We have got a great example of that in Mark chapter 2. In the Disciples of John the Baptist and those of the Pharisees are on one side and the disciple of Jesus is on the other side. And the people come and ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? A disciple's actions are shaped by that rabbi. And this influence extends into the inner, into the spiritual side of things as well. Again, to contrast the disciples of John and Jesus. In Luke 11, Jesus' disciples ask for a prayer just like John gave to his disciples. A prayer that functioned as a sign of their fellowship with him and with one another. So we got the Lord's Prayer. Ringsdorf concludes, In the New Testament, we do not find any instances where disciple is used without this implication of a supremely personal connection or union with the rabbi. This is the type of disciple Jesus has in mind when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate? That's incredibly strong language, radical language, language that, quite frankly, is very difficult to preach as we seek to draw other followers to Jesus. My disciples will hate. It's radical language because the apparent objects of this hatred are members of one's own family, God's building block for society. It flies in the face of the fourth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that it, your days may be long in the land to which the Lord is giving you to own. Hatred seems to be a part of the root cause for the disintegration we see in the family structure of society around us. It, hate that bubbles up in self-seeking, self-serving spirit that underlies much of our world. So what do we do with this statement? Well, I will start by suggesting that Jesus is not making a categorical proclamation. He's not saying that every son must hate every father and that every husband must hate every wife, every child, every brother, every sister, etc., etc. What he is saying might be paraphrased this way. There will come a time when you must hate father or mother, etc., because they are standing between you and me. It's a first commandment question. I must fear, love, and trust in God above all things, and that includes even the members of my family. But there's more to being a disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The brief traveling notice reminds us that Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He is going to the cross. And the 12 in Luke 9 and the 72 in Luke 10 all found that carrying the cross brings with it many dangers. In fact, outside of the passion and resurrection narrative, the cross is only mentioned in Luke's gospel in connection with the disciples, not Jesus. It is a stark reminder that the command to carry the cross is a sentence of death to the old comfortable way of life. We, you and I, need to remember that. Because you and I are disciples in and through baptism. Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, the death of the cross. 
There on Calvary, Christ died, taking your sin upon himself. You are redeemed. But on that cross, the old Adam and the old Eve inside each of us died as well, which absolutely enraged Satan. Luther warns in his baptismal booklet, Therefore, you have to realize that it is no joke at all to take action against the devil and not only to drive him away from this little child, but also to hang around the child's neck such a mighty, lifelong enemy. As my disciple, Christ lives out his work in us. And as he lives in us, there will be persecutions. Crosses will come. And as if hatred and crosses are not enough, Jesus adds one more stipulation to my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is not a rags-to-riches discipleship. No prosperity gospel here. But it should cause many of us to ask some hard questions of our own about property and possessions and priorities. What does my discipleship look like in the face of everything with which God has blessed me? The blessings of God lie in the midst of suffering, not apart from them. Some of those sufferings will be physical, some spiritual, some fiscal, but God is in the midst of all of them. These are hard sayings, hard conditions for being my disciple, and they failed. I mean, the 12 and the 72 and the unnumbered crowd that followed Jesus. Luke signals this linguistically by his word choice. 38 times we hear about the disciples in the Gospel account, right up to Gethsemane. Then they all fall away. Peter denies him. The door is locked for fear of the Jews, and the word disciple disappears from the vocabulary of the Gospel. At the cross, there are no disciples. Luke records simply, and all his acquaintances, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. In the resurrection story, Luke speaks of the eleven and the two of them who were on their way to Emmaus. When Jesus appears at the end of chapter 24, it is in their midst, not the disciples' midst. He appears and begins the work of restoration. Restoration is the personal work of Jesus. Their unfaithfulness is met with his forgiveness. Peace be to you. What man has broken... Only God can put back together. And he does. In Acts chapter 6, after the ascension, after the pouring out of the Spirit of Pentecost, in the account of the election of deacons, again Luke writes, the disciples. And he will another 29 times in his account of the Acts of the Apostles, referring to Christians, referring to you and me. In light of the first disciples' failure and restoration, will you be my disciple, Christ's disciple? Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down first and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Jesus' question seems to imply that the builder lacks adequate financing for the project. Do you still lay the foundation? I suspect the usual answer is no. Either for investment reasons, you don't want to expose capital to risk, or for emotional reasons, you don't want to risk the public ridicule that our text includes. 
Should we despair of building? No. Rather, we should confess, I cannot do it on my own. Jesus did not leave us orphans. He gave us the sacraments. He gave us his spirit. He gave us the office of public ministry to deliver them so that we might be saved by grace through faith for Christ's sake. That's the Augsburg Concession, Articles 5 and then 4, speaking them from God's perspective, his order, recognizing his hand delivering grace through means. Will you be my disciple, Christ's disciple? What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20? Again, the obvious answer is no. Instead, he sues for peace. He asks for mercy. This is the regular posture of repentant disciples on our knees, confessing our sins, asking for mercy. There is, however, a wonderful turn of phrase in the way Jesus gives this obvious answer. And if not, realizing such a battle will be disastrous, will the other, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. When does the king sue for peace? While a great way off. Sound familiar? In the next chapter, the same words describe the father. While he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. The father is our heavenly father in the parable, and his compassion becomes the forgiveness he restored, that restored the son, that restores us. You are forgiven. This is the radical reversal of God's work in our lives. Enmity becomes peace. Rejection becomes acceptance. Law gives way to gospel. My disciple, God makes us disciples. Jesus binds us to himself as disciples unto salvation. We would be mistaken to hear these hard sayings of Jesus as words meant to discourage us, to turn us away from being my disciple. When we read the whole account of Jesus' life, there is nothing clearer than his desire to have all men and women, every father and mother and wife and child and brother and sister into the fold. To quote Doc Rossow, Jesus yearns for us to build that tower of Christianity and to fight that enemy twice our size called Satan. Christianity is alive to take and live 100% under the sway of God. God doesn't want half. He wants all. God wants us to let him take over through Jesus Christ that we might be my disciple. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.